0: The last time that I got punched in the face was in the year 2000. I was 23 years old, 5 foot 10 as I am now, uh, but uh, 150 pounds um, compared to where I am now, which I'll just leave that up to you. And the, my attacker uh, was a 17-year-old boy named Peter. He was as tall as Father Kevin Miller, so practically a giant. Uh, But he was 250 pounds, so about 100 pounds heavier than me at the time. I was working in a residential treatment center as a mental health professional, and I was working with a group of teenage boys who were all wards of the state, and they were unsuccessful at uh, doing well in group homes or other kinds of uh, situations. And so they were in this residential treatment center, Many of them were violent and out of control. And it was my job as a mental health professional to make sure that everyone remained safe on the unit. It was a lock-in unit. And uh, so my job at that moment in being punched in the face and having a black eye begin to swell and form was to take Peter down. That was my job. Well, a little context or maybe a little history for you. I grew up uh, as a pretty small person in every grade level, all the way up till high school. I, um, Father Stephen, and uh, he's, he's bonding with me in this moment. And I am very familiar with larger kids bullying me, or you know they look around the classroom and they look for that one kid they know that they can shame and humiliate. Uh, and so I have faced many situations where the fight-or-flight mechanism kicks in, and I always chose flight. Um, one time in the eighth grade, a, a group of 20 kids came to my front door with bats. They rang the doorbell. I came to the door, and they said, you want to come out and fight? I said, I'm busy. <laughs> so standing in that, that unit as an adult and as an authority figure, Peter, who was uh, very angry at the world, particularly at authority figures, um, I had my moment of, this is the fight or flight moment. What am I going to do? And I took in a deep breath, I gathered up all my strength, and I chose to charge at Peter. And I took Peter down on the ground, and I physically restrained him with my 150-pound body. Now, my wife wants me to mention all the other adults that were there to help me take (laughs) Peter down, but I don't think they're an important part of the story. I was so proud of myself. I stood my ground. I did what my job required of me. I was trained to take these large children down uh, without hurting them, and uh, to hold them on the ground until they had calmed down and could regain control of their behavior. Um, So in that moment of taking Peter down, that's when I earned my second black eye. Um, But as my both eyes were swelling and the heat was in my face, I thought, God used my little frame, my small person, To shame this very large 17 year old boy. He regained control. He was very, very apologetic afterwards. And he was very bonded to me afterwards. It's very unusual. But I learned through that that sometimes God will use the weak to shame the strong, which is in our New Testament reading this morning. And weakness is, I think, something that we can all relate to. We've all had seasons in our lives where we felt weak where we felt like we didn't have the resources we needed. We've had uh, uh, weak moments, weak seasons, like job changes, financial difficulties, dating breakups, car troubles, and even moments of temptation, where we've been able to say or think, I don't have what it takes to get through this. I can't do this on my own. Well, this morning, as we dive into our text, my hope is to demonstrate that from Scripture, that we can grow through those weak seasons, we can grow through those weak moments, and become, on the other side of them, more capable than before the weak season or weak moment, that we can become more capable uh, individuals, more capable husbands and wives, more capable parents, more capable students or employees, because God chooses the weak. So we're in the middle of this sermon series, called The Children of Light, Overcoming the Darkness. And it's based on the epiphany themes of uh, emphasizing when the person of Jesus as the Son of God was revealed to mankind. So on January 12, we began with the story of the Magi. And on January 19, we studied the baptism of Jesus. And last week, we studied the passage where Jesus called his first disciples, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So this morning, Jesus has begun his public ministry, and he's performed miracles and healings, signs and wonders, and a great crowd has begun to follow Jesus. And he goes up onto a mountainside, and he sits down, and he begins the first teaching, the first sermon that we have recorded in Matthew. And he starts with the Beatitudes. So let's look at uh, the gospel passage today. This is perhaps the first time that his uh, new disciples, those that have have dropped their nets and left their uh, homes or occupations and started following Jesus, this is perhaps the first time they are hearing Jesus describe the kingdom of God not as a kingdom of aggression and domination over the political forces in power over Israel. As the people of Israel began to ask the question, could this man be the Messiah, Is he the one we're waiting for? All their preconceived notions about the Messiah start to come up. Isn't the Messiah supposed to usher us, uh, Israel, back into power um, among the nations of the world? But this man, he doesn't look like a soldier. He doesn't look very big. He's not formidable. He's rather unimpressive in appearance. And he's saying these very strange things about the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He starts this sermon with these eight pronounced blessings. Six of them are orientations of the heart, the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. And two of the blessings are states of suffering. He blesses those who mourn, and he blesses the persecuted. And then he concludes by blessing everyone in his audience who will suffer as a result of following the Lord Jesus. Now, I grew up in a secular military family, and these were not the qualities that Jesus is describing here and blessing. These were not the qualities that I was taught growing up. This is what you need to embrace in order to survive or thrive in today's world. And I'm guessing they weren't highly valued in first century Israel under Roman occupation. Meekness and weakness are synonymous in today's world. Being referred to as poor in spirit is not a compliment to anyone. No one aspires to any kind of poverty. In America today, we value strength and power. We jockey for influence and authority. We want to acquire resources that will strengthen our position in the work world and in our relationships. We want to climb the corporate ladder and build our towers and leave behind a heritage, an inheritance, and a legacy to the next generation. So why does Jesus begin, of all the things he could have said at the very beginning, why does he begin with these statements? They seem like a random collection of embarrassing character qualities that wouldn't help anyone in today's world. Well, as I studied this passage and asked the question over and over again, Jesus, why did you say this? Why did you begin with this? I think the Beatitudes reveal to us more than just a description of the kinds of things Jesus wants to bless. I think they also reveal something about the nature of God. Something about the attributes of who God is is revealed in the Beatitudes. Jesus says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. God chooses the weak to reveal his power We can see this throughout a lot of the scriptural stories in the Old Testament and New Testament. God chose Gideon from the weakest clan of the Israelites, and with an army of only 300, they defeated the Midianite army with God's help. God chose Moses from a shepherd's life to lead all the Israelites out of Egypt in opposition to the massive Egyptian army and the chariots. God chose a young boy named David to defeat the giant Goliath and become Israel's greatest king, and God chooses you. God chooses you. Why does God choose the weak things of this world to shame the strong and to reveal his power? In the Greco-Roman world, the ideal for the Son of God was Hercules. He had superhuman strength. He was a son of God, and he was a child of a human woman, He was an ancient Superman of the Greco-Roman world, and he fought evil in this world. Israelites perhaps expected someone like Samson with superhuman strength, or maybe they expected someone like King David, a young warrior and a profound leader, to be the Messiah, to come and rescue them from their situation. But they did not expect someone like Jesus, a simple rabbi and a homeless carpenter. So why does Jesus begin his public teaching ministry with blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, right from the beginning, with all these expectations in the crowd around him, all these expectations in the disciples he has just called to follow him, he begins by distinguishing life in the kingdom from life in this world. He is saying the kingdom of God is not what you think. The kingdom of God is entirely different from anything you've ever experienced the world wants a Superman, and everyone in the world wants to be a Superman, but God wants the meek. I think today most people are preoccupied with power and control. We don't want to be weak. We want to hide our weaknesses from others, but the truth of the matter is we also deeply resonate with the stories of common, ordinary, even small characters who triumph over great evil. This is why the story is like Uh, Lewis and Tolkien resonate so deeply with us. Uh, Quoting from the Lord of the Rings, Elrond says, such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. The great genius of the plot of the Lord of the Rings lies in how it juxtaposes the small, humble, weak actions of the hobbits against the great grand and powerful actions of the high and noble. Likewise, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in every story, it's mere children who are the heroes, upsetting the seemingly better laid plans of those who are much older, stronger, and smarter. We love the stories of, of David and Goliath, the young boy without any armor defeating the great giant that everyone's afraid of, or the story of Esther, this common, ordinary Jewish girl who, because of her bravery, rescues the entire Jewish people. We love these stories because we, we, we realize that this is the way that God works in the world. God does choose the weak. He chooses weak individuals, and he chooses weak moments. And that's how he demonstrates his power. He chooses our most difficult seasons of struggle to reveal his hand of blessing. My wife and I are in the midst of a really challenging season of weakness right now in our lives. We heard the Lord tell us in July to put our house on the market that he wanted to provide a new home for us. And so we obeyed, even though we had previously had our house on the market for a whole year, doing house showings for the whole year with four kids and having no uh, success at selling our home. But this time, when we heard the Lord tell us to put the house on the market, we did. And it was on the market for two weeks before we had a buyer and we closed and sold the house in October. We were amazed and a little shocked and wondering, what are we gonna do? We've just sold the house that we've lived in for the last 10, 11 years and the house that we've had all of our children in and raised um, to the point that they are now. And so we began searching for houses in the area that fit uh, the size of our family's needs as well as the size of our budget. And that was a pretty small number of homes in the area. But we fell in love with this beautiful, well, actually it's quite ugly, but it's, a, it's got a lot of potential, uh, this foreclosure in West Chicago. And uh, we put in a bid, And we got a contract on the week that we were moving out of our house. And the contract was set, uh, the closing was set for six weeks later. And so we knew we had to find a place to live for six weeks temporarily with our family of six, four kids. And uh, some wonderful friends in the Wheaton area took us into their basement. And we lived in their basement for those uh, weeks while we worked through the process of closing on this home. But we encountered several unexpected uh, difficulties, unexpected great news and unexpected devastating news in this process of trying to buy a fixer-upper with a construction loan and to make it all work. Now it's been over three months and uh, we still don't have a closing on the calendar and the whole deal can fall apart at any moment. It's very precarious uh, with this uh, bank that that owns the property. And yesterday, we had to move out of our friend's basement in Wheaton and into another friend's basement in Wheaton uh, with our four kids. And so my wife and I were feeling scared and we're feeling powerless. We're at the mercy of this big bank that's selling the the property. And all throughout the process, we have recounted the many times we've seen God stretch forth his hand and perform miracles for us. Uh, He's provided four incredible heroes and giants for us to to advocate for us. Our realtor, our mortgage lady, our contractor, and our lawyer are all incredible. And they encourage us every time we get really scared. Um, Some days it's all that I can do to keep the panic from exploding out of my chest. And the desperation we both feel has compelled us to pray every moment that the kids are leaving us alone. So ever so briefly. And so we've prayed as a couple more than we've ever prayed in our lives in these last three months. When I asked Aliana, my eight-year-old, what God was teaching us through this experience, she said, humiliation? (laughs) Well, two weeks ago, we experienced this major shift in our crucible of weakness. When we realized that we had to move out of our friend's basement before we had our new home, and we had to find another temporary place to stay. The bank, at that time, also decided to let the contract expire until we had done a few things, and they started playing hardball in order to extract some more money from us. Um, I remember overhearing one of my children praying this prayer, God, please punish the impudent bankers. (laughs) And our, our panic was at its highest. Don and I began to pray differently. Instead of just praying for this crucible to end as quickly as possible, we started praying that God would instead enlarge our souls in this season because we didn't know how long it was going to go. We still don't know how long it's going to go. We prayed that the stress we were feeling that seemed unbearable would stretch us and increase our capacity. We started praying that God would grow us In this crucible rather than just end it as quickly as possible. So now, without the situation being resolved, let me share one thing that Don and I have noticed. Our intimacy with God has jumped way up. We have noticed that uh, that in the midst of asking the question, why, why are we going through this? Why is it taking so long? Why are uh, there so many difficulties? Um, We feel like God has answered this question, why the way of weakness? this way of weakness, why God chooses the weak, reveals something to us about the nature of God, who God is. As I reflected on this passage in preparation for this sermon, I realized that God doesn't just embrace weakness or accept weakness or hear the cry of the poor. God entered into our poverty, into our weakness. God came into the world in the nativity as a weak and vulnerable infant. As a man, he chose to receive the kiss of betrayal. He allowed himself to be captured, whipped, and publicly humiliated. He submitted to his captors as they undressed him, as they hammered nails into his hands and feet. And then he waited on the cross until he couldn't breathe anymore, about six hours. And in his greatest pain and anguish, he didn't fight back. When every single one of us would have used whatever power we had at our disposal to make the pain and anguish end, he didn't use the power that he had. He waited until he could physically give up his breath, his spirit. Even his closest followers were perplexed by this. Why didn't he call on the legion of angels? Why didn't he say the word that would bring it all to an end? Why didn't he display his power, which he surely possessed, as the Son of God. Well, we, just like the early disciples, are confused about what power is. We can't help but think in terms of power distribution. In our marriages, who has more power? In our parent-child relationships, in our work environments, and even in the church. Jesus did not come to dominate the world. He came as a sacrifice. And he lifted us up beyond our greatest human power to lift ourselves up, So the Beatitudes teach me that God chooses the weak because he emptied himself and he became weak and vulnerable to rejection by his most beloved children. So if we're going to participate in the divine nature, we have to accept, we must accept our human weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, and submit our will to his will, poor in spirit and meek. This is the eternal reversing of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. They were tempted by Satan to become their own God and to rely on themselves. So by opening our hearts to God and ceasing to rely on ourselves and submitting our will to His will, we come back into that relationship that is a vulnerable relationship where God tells us what He wants from us and we follow and obey even though we don't understand. We cease to rely on ourselves. Adam and Eve were naked and vulnerable before they sinned, and it wasn't bad. It was good to be naked and vulnerable. They were not ashamed. And Jesus willingly dies on the cross naked and vulnerable for us. So why did God choose to come in human weakness? Because God's nature is to serve and sacrifice for us. It's who He is, it's His very person to pour out His being for us and upon us. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells His disciples, Do not be like the Gentiles who lord it over others, but be servants. Jesus said that because that is who God is. God chooses the weak. Today, in your weak moments, In your weak seasons, the enemy will tempt you to forget that God has come into your body, that you have invited him to come inside and to live within you. And you will be tempted to live as if you are your own God. When we're weak, when we feel like we don't have power, we grasp. We're tempted to grasp for power, to clutch at it. So, how are we to live out this passage? that Jesus himself taught about the kingdom of heaven. What should we do when we feel weak and poor in spirit? Well, here are four suggestions. When you're in your season of trial, draw closer to Jesus instead of making him your adversary. I've met with and prayed with many people who in small difficulties and in great difficulties begin to question and blame God for what they're going through don't do that. Don't blame God. Don't consider Him your enemy. Go to Him. Draw close to Him. Make a space in your life to cry out to Him. Go to a prayer chapel or your prayer closet, a place of solitude, and ask God to sit with you, to be close to you, and to meet with you in your struggle. You will no longer feel alone in your trial. The blessing that you will receive is closeness, intimacy with God. The second suggestion, when you have a moment of weakness or a season of weakness, ask for help. A lot of us don't like to do that. It is humiliating to ask for help. But God reveals his love to us through the physical, tangible expressions of love that other people give to us. He can express his love to you even through those who don't believe in God, God can use anyone to help you and to reveal his power and his love to you. You can ask for food. My family has received more meals from this church than I can count. And every time someone knocks on my door and hands me a meal for my wife and my kids, my love for God grows. I'm overwhelmed, I'm surprised. I can't believe that people would love us enough to work in their kitchens and to make food for us. When you ask for help, the blessing that you will receive is God will grow love in your soul. The third suggestion, when you're suffering, open your eyes and your ears. Look for the ways that God is fighting for you. Look for the ways that God is stretching forth his hand and displaying his power in your situation. Every time I've met with someone who's blaming God for their suffering— I notice that they cannot see what he's doing. They're completely blind to the things that God is doing for them. And they can't hear him speak either. In prayer, ask God to speak and listen to what he says about your situation. In sharing your predicament with those around you and other people, ask them what they think God is saying in your situation. If you look and listen for God, The blessing that you will receive is you will see God. The last suggestion, fourth, in those longer seasons of weakness that are drawn out and you can't see an end to them, you don't know when they're going to end, don't just pray that your situation will end soon, that your suffering will be over as quickly as possible. Pray that God will enlarge your soul that you will be ennobled to carry even greater burdens than you're carrying right now. This is the only way that a person can become truly magnanimous in this life. A person like Mother Teresa, we can hardly carry the sufferings of one child, and this woman carried the sufferings of countless children because she experienced the enlarging of her soul through her trials of personal weakness and through sitting with and being with those who suffered all around her. She was drawn to those who suffered, and she entered into their suffering so that her soul would enlarge and grow. If you pray for God to enlarge your soul through your situation, God will bless you and increase your capacity for love, for faith, for hope, and most certainly for joy. It's the only way I know that you can consider it pure joy, When you face trials and tribulations. Now, for those of you here who may not know God, when you invite Jesus to come into your body and you become a Christian, Jesus begins to open your heart. He slowly begins to open your heart to what he's doing, and he begins to transform you into a person who can make sacrifices for others. He starts by revealing your own spiritual poverty, that you can't make yourself better, that you can't heal yourself, that you can't fix all your own problems. He reveals that to you, and you discover that you just don't have the inner resources that are required even to bring yourself closer to God. You need Him to come to you. So you enter into that habit that every Christian has of crying out, God, please come to me, please help me, please draw near to me. And then Jesus helps you pray in those situations where you come to the end of yourself that you would normally have have relied only on your own devices. And he helps you to pray and to rely on God when you wouldn't normally have. And you learn that apart from God, you can do truly nothing. So let's all of us turn to God now, And declare that we are not God. Let's submit our lives, our wills to him as we prepare for Holy Communion. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, that you would manifest your power in and through our weaknesses. Lord, we acknowledge and confess our weaknesses and our human frailty We are sorry for looking to our own devices instead of turning to you. We open our hearts to you now, and we ask that you would reveal your power in our weakness. We ask, O Lord, would you minister your presence, even in this moment, to those who are in seasons of trial and struggle and suffering. Lord, would you enlarge their souls? Would you grow them in this season and increase their capacities? We pray that every person in this room would grow in intimacy with you, Lord Jesus, and that those who don't know you would invite you in and say yes to you, Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.